You know, I love that song that we just sang. And I think for all who have walked with Jesus Christ on the pilgrim road, the road going home to heaven's city, Zion City, all of us can echo that in our hearts, those words that we just sang. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. That is the Christian life and experience. But, you know, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death at times, we can sing as we did in that last stanza, mine are keys to Zion's city where before the king I walk. There my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. And that's the ultimate joy that we have as, as Christians. You know, brothers and sisters, as we begin our service today, our time with the Lord in the Word, let's just go before Him in prayer and ask this God who has prepared for us a home in Zion City to speak to us. Father in heaven, I love how the psalmist said, O oh God, that the days that you have are numbered for us, made so that we could walk with you. And yet, God, day after day, we search for worldly treasure and we forsake the King of Kings. God, we are a people who are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love, prone, O oh God, to chase anything else other than you and to hew out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water and drink from them thinking that this is life. Father, this is not life. There is only one life to be had and that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask today is that we open your word and we continue in this letter from Paul to Timothy that we would hear from your word, O God, and that your word would correct our errant thinking, O God, and that we would learn how to live rightly. Father, let us hear your voice today. Bless us with your presence and hammer our souls, O God, with truth so that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you by the power that comes to the name of Jesus Christ. I ask this. Amen. Let me begin with a reading of our text of Scripture today from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. You may follow along the Bibles there in the pews, or you can read it uh, on the slides. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Do not rebuke an older man, harsh, uh, an older man but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a woman has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach 
But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know, the text that we have just read today has one big idea, and that is that is absolutely critical, absolutely important for us to understand how Christians in the family of God are to treat each other. You know, the family is one of the greatest metaphors that's used all throughout the New Testament to describe us as Christians, what we are towards one another. The church is not a corporation. It's a family composed of flesh and blood human beings, of people and not programs. And the importance of having a close, functional family really cannot be understated. You know, just this last week, I read a research paper published in the Lineker Quarterly, which is the oldest continuously published journal on bioethics in the United States. And one of the things that it showed was that um, things like divorce, parental separation, lack of commitment in terms of cohabitation, as opposed to marriage, had majorly adverse effects on children and on society in general. Custodial mothers can lose up to 50% of their pre-divorce income. Children in such homes are generally more likely to grow up in poverty. The loss of a father, it wrote, results usually in a loss of emotional security, and that in turn can affect uh, sociological and psychological development. GPAs from families where there are kids who come from these homes are generally much lower. And uh, families that uh, are married, on the other hand, and have these secure relationships, on the whole, tend to be more successful, richer, and also more involved in civic responsibilities, such as volunteering for a school, serving in a church, or being generally engaged in community activity. The stats basically in that paper go on and on and on, but the message is undeniably clear. The truth of the matter is that though we have statistics, though, to back us up, and everybody knows it's true, this has done very little to fix the problems, the social problems that are plaguing us as a society. We all know that it's better to have intact families, and yet I could say right now, arguably, that our families are in the most trouble that we have ever been in, and perhaps things are getting worse. You know, the Christian church of North America really has not spared this, I would say, as well. I think it's quite sad to see um, the devastation that's hit the church. When I was in seminary, I remember a professor asking us in our family studies class to put up our hands if we came to know Jesus at a young age, or we had family members that actually taught us about Jesus Christ when we were young. And many of these, you know, who are... uh, budding students coming up in the ministry to serve in churches raised their hands, you know. Good percentage didn't come from families that taught them about Jesus, but there were a large number who did, as you should expect, from children who come from Christian families, who taught them about the gospel. But the next question that the professor asked was really stunning. And he asked us, said, if you would consider your parents to be uh, exemplary to you and your role models for Christianity and a marriage that you want to an- emulate, Put up your hand again. And less than a fifth of those hands that had been put up went up. Now, the saddest thing about this is to think that even in Christian seminary, 
you know, the vast majority of children who had professed that Jesus Christ, you know, had been instrumental in their lives through their family, they themselves could not affirm that their own parents were leading exemplary Christian lives and taught them about the Christian faith. Taught them the basics, but not in a way that they would look at and say, I want to be like mom and dad. And that to me is such a sad thing. I fear that the statistic in the church actually is not that different from that. How many would actually look at parents as role models worthy of imitation that they could look at and say, I want to follow mom and dad as they followed Jesus Christ. Church, what does a functional family mean or look like? What does it look like in the church? What does it look like in society? And that is the question that the Apostle Paul wants to grapple with today. What is it supposed to look like? What is the family of the church supposed to look like? How are we to treat each other? So as we look at this text, I just pray that the Lord would open our eyes and that we would see things in here today from God's word of how we are to live. Let's walk through this text a couple verses at a time. Let's read verses 1 to 2 again. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You know, here our text begins with the apostle giving instructions to this young pastor, Timothy, on how to treat different groups of people in the church. And the way he does it is that he begins by first focusing on four different groups, beginning with older men. Now, what's fascinating about the apostles' comments here is that they are uniquely biblical, I would say, and they are neither Western in cultural thinking or Eastern in their flavor. You know, in many Eastern cultures, you have a sense that you are supposed to respect those who are older than you. For example, amongst us Asian people, it is unthinkable for us to look at somebody in our parents' generation and dare to call them by their first name. That will get you killed. So you don't look at that person and say, that's Tim or Susie. You say, that is Uncle Tim and that is Auntie Susie. And in some cultures, you even nod your head with a little bow. Nobody teaches you to do that, but you know very well in society that is what is expected of you. Now, this is so ingrained, actually, in Asian thinking and in the culture that it's actually hard to physically think about doing anything else, especially if you've been taught this way since you were young. I remember as a young man growing up here and experiencing this cultural class, as a Caucasian friend's parents introduced themselves to me for the first time, and um, I said, how do you do, Mrs. T? And the lady looked at me and she said, no, Mrs. T is my mother. Call me Sharon. And she stuck out her hand. Now, I had trouble with this, and I kind of stuttered at her. I said, Sharon? It felt like I was swearing right, to do that. <laughs> it actually took me numerous instances of me fumbling through her name over the course of the next few months and her polite correction for me to be able to become comfortable calling her by her first name. It was very hard for me to think that I was not being very rude uh, to a person who was my elder. Since when did I think, did I come to be a, an individual who had grown up enough to be on a first name basis with my best friend's parents? 
Now, in North America today, the way our culture is, very few people insist on being called Mr. and Mrs., unless they're perhaps over 60, and they come from a generation in which people were largely formal in the way that they interacted with each other. Now, perhaps you haven't thought about this before, but actually the way that we address each other in our culture tells us a lot about what our culture actually values. A first-name culture like ours, for example, carries within itself the implicit idea that whether you are young or whether you are old, when you use your first name, you are speaking automatically with somebody who is your equal. If respect is to be given in our society, in our culture, it's not primarily because of age, but rather because you have done something that has earned it. For example, if you had the opportunity to sit down with Bill Gates, for example, over coffee to be able to talk together, don't know how you would get that opportunity, the multi-billionaire founder of Microsoft, I don't think that even in our culture you would have the audacity to greet him and say, how's it going, Bill? I think you would probably begin carefully by addressing him as Mr. Gates. Thank you very much for taking the time to meet with me today. And the reason, why do you do this instinctively? The reason that you know to do this, even though we're in a first-name culture, is because you understand that in our culture, we value achievement. Mr. Gates, in our culture, has climbed the Mount Everest of achievement, being one of the youngest men in the world to ever have become billionaires and built an empire that affects every computer, basically, on the face of the globe. Even though Bill Gates is a college dropout and you probably have more education than him, you understand implicitly that you need to give him a certain level of respect because of what he has achieved. And this is understood in our culture today because we are an achievement-based culture and we understand that those who achieve well in our society need an honorific before their name in order to properly acknowledge that they have reached the highest places in our culture. You know, most of us in our society like to think generally that we are respectful people. But in reality, when we're talking about being respectful, actually all we are doing is being culturally respectful and not so much absolutely respectful. See, in a culture that values achievement, We usually only accord respect to those who are self-made and have been successful. But this isn't true in other cultures around the world. Of course, other cultures respect achievement and people who have done great things, but not to the degree and to the exclusion of other factors that are also praiseworthy or worthy of respect that other cultures value. Now... When you're talking about Western culture or Asian culture, I think that both of them have their pros and their cons. The Asian culture respects people primarily based on the fact of who they are and not because of what they have achieved in life. See, an educated, an uneducated, sorry, person who is old is still to be respected as uncle. Therefore, Asian churches today, when you look at them, I think are more prone to obey the scriptures in terms of honoring those who are elderly, according them respect simply by virtue of their age. But where Asian churches generally go wrong with this is that the unbiblical idea of age being the most dominant factor is really hard to get rid of. And as a result of that, In Eastern thinking, Asian churches and other places, there is a tendency to allow 
biblically unqualified individuals or people that they know really well to take positions of leadership and to lead the church simply because honor, respect, age, familial relationships are in their favor. And so the culture flounders in this way and damages, I think, the church. See, in these cultures, the idea of having a young pastor who is old enough only to be a child, you know, in some of their eyes, is really unthinkable and perhaps even offensive, especially if that pastor were to dare to correct an individual who's clearly the age of their parents. They would look at that and say, how rude, how dare you do such a thing? You're old enough only to be my child, my son's age. Don't talk. The difficulty with this, right, of course, is that this is not the biblical picture that is painted for us. And I know this problem plagues many of us in North America, uh, many immigrant churches. Now, North American churches don't get off the hook easy here either. They also have their own pros and cons. Because we are on a first-name basis, in generally speaking, with the people in our culture, and we understand that we all speak as equals and that achievement is a really important thing in our culture, we know that you can be a CEO if you are 20 years younger than the rest of the people on your board. Why? We accept that in our culture because we understand that being old simply does not implicitly give you respect, but that if you have achieved something in a way that other people your age have not, you deserve to leave that board whether you're 20 or 30 years younger. It's about results. The downside of this in well, the upside of this in our culture is that in the church, the North American church, there is less of this intergenerational snobbery that is experienced in the church simply because we understand in our culture that if we are talking to each other, even within 20 or 30 years, there is somewhat a level of equality. We gauge people based on the quality of the words that come out of their mouths and the thoughts that they think. But the downside to this in our culture is that there is very little respect for those who do not achieve, for those who are elderly and those that we look at as unproductive. We see the elderly and say, what a burden. How much will it cost to take care of them? What can they contribute? Rather than the way that a traditional culture would look at this and think, the old are a blessing. This is a patriarch of our family. Give them the best seat there at the dinner table. You know, I always chuckle when I hear people say, oh, Christianity is a Western religion, and I, I really don't think we should be preaching the gospel everywhere and forcing a Western religion on people around this world. And then I would say, you know, there's two things wrong with that. First of all, Christianity is not a Western religion. If you, last I checked on the map, Jerusalem and the land of Israel is out in the east, in part of Asia. It didn't start here in the West. The second thing that you need to know is that the culture of the gospel, as you have read just here in our text, is neither Western nor is it Eastern. In fact, the gospel has a rebuke to give to both cultures for their excesses. The gospel says to respect those who are older, but don't hold back from correcting them when they are wrong according to God's word. See, the key to understanding about how to treat people in the church is to look at God's word and say, where does my culture not measure up with the biblical standard. And the way that the biblical standard looks at people in the church and says to treat them is neither Western nor Eastern. Don't give people simply all 
authority to do whatever they want in the church because they are old. No, give them the respect that they are due, but make sure people are biblically qualified to be leaders. On the flip side as well, look at all people, young and old, and treat them with dignity. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Do not look at people 20 or 30 years younger and snub them simply because they are young, but treat them as you would a brother or a sister in Christ. The gospel says the key to understanding how to how the family of God is supposed to live is to understand that it's about relationship. See older people, older men, and treat them the way that you would a father with dignity and respect. And the same thing goes for younger men, which is the next category that he lists out. Now, you know, young people are generally looked down in most cultures, and in the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, sometimes this happens as well. But the clear teaching that we have here is that younger people, younger men in the Lord are to be looked at as younger brothers, to be nurtured, to be developed, to be loved, to be corrected, and deserving of our affection. You know, earlier Paul had told Timothy not to let people look down on him because he was young, but to set the believers an example in how he was supposed to live. And But here he also commands him, don't just set an example, but Take action as well. You know, Timothy, he wants to remind him that Timothy eventually will get old. And the tendency that the people around him had to disparage him because of his youth could easily become his as well. And he, in his dealings with his younger people and men in the church, needed to understand to treat them with the dignity that he would with young brothers. Yes, I know working with young men, younger than myself, or even people like myself, they can be impetuous, brash, so love-struck that they make decisions that are absolutely silly to the rest of us who seem to know better. And we are flabbergasted, you know, by the things that they do and their passions. But the biblical teaching is not to snub such individuals or to disparage them or to dishonor them, but to treat them with respect and to build them up as you would brothers. What those who are younger in our church need is not blunt blunt contempt, but biblical correction instead. You know, Paul moves on and he goes to another category. The same is true, he would say, for those who are older women. Don't treat them just like anybody that you meet off the street, but treat them as you would a mother. Not as people to be ignored or to be tolerated or people to roll your eyes at, but with the great dignity that comes with motherhood. Now, the image of a mother raising her children is universal and extremely powerful. You know, all relationships in this world are intertwined in some fashion or another, but only the relationship of a mother and a child is one of life actually carrying another life. You know, the mother's own body will be the shield and warmth for a little child that could never protect itself and requires the security of its mother's womb to be able to grow and to be able to be birthed. The mother's hands are the hands that feed that little child, dress the little child, change the poopy diapers, and basically give that child its life. You know, the biggest football players, the strongest military men, and the smartest scientists in the world all have one thing in common, and that is they started off as itty-bitty little babies. 
and needed to drink milk from their mother's breasts. You know, these people, no matter how great they become to be, whether it's the President of the United States or a janitor who works in some place that nobody ever sees, all of them at one time in their lives found refuge from the perils of the world by hiding behind their mother's skirts and clinging to their legs. See, a mother never clocks out of her job. And the time that she spends rearing a child is longer than the longest PhD program in the world. You know, a mother's baby may grow up, but a grown-up never ceases to be her baby. See, a mother bears on her own body stretch marks, scars, wrinkles, and gray hairs that were not there at the beginning when that child started out on their life. And you look at that and you say, how can a mother possibly ever be repaid for the sacrifices that they have made for their children? Never. They can't. And when you think of the older women in the church and you think of the sacrifice of mothers, this is exactly why we need to take the hands of the old saints, the old women saints in our church, and as we stroke them and look at them and look into the eyes of aging parents who might not even really remember our names because of dementia, we are to look at them and to honor not the wrinkles on their hands, but what those wrinkles represent. Hands that gave us life. And this is how the church wants us to look at older women in the church. With all the dignity and adoration that is due to those who have given themselves selflessly. Honor older women as mothers. You know, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to his fourth category. That's what you do with older women. What do you do with younger women? And he says, treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. They are to be loved as dear family members with affection, care, taking care of those who are vulnerable. This would have been especially important for Timothy, who would have worked probably with a number of young women. And he had to make sure that his conduct didn't lead him down a road of sexual temptation or sin that would damage the reputation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oh, how much damage has been done in this area when pastors or leaders have failed. You know, St. Dominic, the founder of the Dominican order of preachers that still exists today, started with just five people, but by the end of his life, basically had thousands of followers, devoted his life to preaching the gospel and living a holy life. And on his deathbed, he confessed his deepest and darkest sin. That though he had always been sexually chaste, his great sin was that he enjoyed talking with younger women more than he did with older ones. And I read that and I thought to myself, if only the church and the sins of its leaders and its people were of that magnitude. Too much sexual abuse, adultery, and immorality have plagued churches. And yet the apostles' instructions are clear. Timothy, look at the younger women in your congregation and treat them as you would a sister, not to be abused, but to be cherished, ministered to, and loved. You know, to say, fathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers, how should we as a church look at the relationships that exist here? 
we should think family, family first. And I think the North American church has fallen very short of this in terms of really thinking of the church as being a family. Many times in persecuted churches, the church really is your family because when you are thrown out from your work because you believe the gospel, when you are persecuted, who else do you have to turn to? Even your own parents might throw you out for your belief in Jesus. So the church functions as your family. But here in North America, I think many of us don't depend on the church, but we shop for churches. We look at a church and we go from place to place saying, hmm, I've tried this one out. Can you imagine what it would happen if we shopped for family the same way that we shop for churches? Hmm, I tried this one out. The brothers and sisters here didn't have a good feel from them. I'd like a new set of brothers and sisters. Or I went to this other family the other day and visited it. The mothers and fathers there were great, but I hated their musical style. I need a different type of mom and dad. You know, you go back and forth different places, and I think church hopping really is the equivalent of family swapping. How would you like it, you know, if we didn't like things that our children did, and we threatened to say, if you don't behave, I'm going to go and get a different son, and this son will do what you never did. We'll trade you around until we get those that most match what we like. Would be nothing to parenthood at that point. Parenthood would be one of the easiest things in the world. If you could take up one of those Amazon 30-day guarantees and say, I'm returning this to sender if it doesn't work. It's not how family works. From day one of your purchase, it's yours for the rest of your life. If only we saw the church in this way, brothers and sisters, and said, I know so-and-so is irritating. It is very hard to work with them. But am I also not a piece of work and difficult and a sinner as well who is in need of the grace of God? As much as I put up with those in the church, do they not put up with me? Isn't that what it means to be family? Not that you have a perfect track record that is sinless, but of people who sin against each other and yet find forgiveness and grace that comes only through Jesus Christ. A family that we will take with us into all of eternity. Prolonged church hopping and shopping is playing church, and it is robbery. It is robbing yourself of the blessing of Christian family and robbing other Christians as well of the joy of having you as a blessing and a partner and a fellowshipper in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be a church thief by being a church hopper. Look at your family in Christ and say, through thick and thin, I'm here just as my Lord is always there for me. It is my hope to follow him and to emulate my Savior with my life. Church, I honestly hope that that will be the vision and heart for our family here at Westland Baptist Church, that we will look at each other not as an organization but with the love that we should have as a family. You know, but there's one more thing that we need to see here. I think it's an awesome thing to see that perhaps in this family of brothers, sisters, and, you know, uncles, aunties, dads, moms, that we can be something that the world will look at and say, I want what you have. There's one more thing that Paul wants to focus in on here. Family also sometimes has people who are destitute and absolutely needy. And we as a church have a special obligation as a family to care for them. 
Verses 3 to 4 reads this. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents. And this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ is composed of many biological families. But one thing that Paul wants to make sure of here is that those who are truly widows in the church need to be cared for by their church family. But the first responders that he wants to focus on are their immediate biological family, that is, grandchildren and children. See, for Paul and his explanation, Christian godliness is not an abstract, con- con- an abstract concept, but a very practical action. And in the house of God, godliness actually begins at home. Now, serving a needy parent takes effort. That is for certain. But so did raising a needy child. And the truth of the matter is that no matter how much work that we as children do to serve our parents in their old age, we will never, ever be able to fully repay them for what they have done for us. And that is why the Apostle Paul says here, make some return, not a full return on what our parents have done. And furthermore, he explains that to do this, you want to know what God thinks about this? This is pleasing in the sight of God. You know, oftentimes people ask me, what is God's will for my life? Now, sometimes God directs people very specifically, telling them, for example, go into Macedonia and preach the gospel. But other times, His will for us is very ordinary. If you have aging parents or people who are dependent on you, you don't need to search very far to find the will of God, to love them and to care for them and to cherish them in the name of Christ as his follower is to please the Lord your God. See, it's not just a pastor's job to care for the widows and those who are poor in the church. It is the job of Christian families as well. Go and visit your widowed mother, even though she barely can open her eyes or is cognizant of the things that you do for her, all of your best efforts will never be wasted as your Father in heaven looks down on you with pleasure. Verse 4, right? It says, it's pleasing in the sight of God. Do you want to know how you can make the invisible God smile even though you can't see Him? Serve your aging parents. Love them in the name of Jesus Christ and you'll put a smile on the face of God. But what about widows who don't have family? Look at verses 5 to 6 here. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. You know, here Paul is talking about widows who are genuinely widows in the church in the truest sense of the word. They've got no family, no children, no relatives whatsoever to take care of them. And he says that this widow has no hope other than putting them trust in God. Just like Anna the prophetess who devoted herself to praying day and night as a widow, so these widows also put themselves and their trust in a true anchor that is God himself. They have no earthly anchors left. And the question is, is that anchor sure? And Paul contrasts this with a self-indulgent woman who lives for pleasure and for the things of this world 
And he says, that woman is spiritually dead even though she has physical life. You know, I think it's very important to understand what hope widows can find. Those who are destitute and needy can have in Jesus Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, we can see God's incredible heart for the orphans and for the widows of the world. Exodus chapter 22 says this, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. In other words, This text teaches us that the ears of God are especially open to those who are most vulnerable and needy, widows included. You know, when I was a youth pastor, I took a group of grade 12 students on a 20-hour long bus trip for a grad trip. And late in the evening while we were traveling down, I found a student at the back there who was not doing very well at all. He felt terribly sick. He complained of pain. His stomach hurt. He was dizzy. Now, being no doctor, I wasn't exactly sure what to do, and uh, I prayed to God that it was nothing serious. When we stopped for gas, this student staggered off of the bus and went to the gas station and bought a whole pile of snacks and then went to the back of the bus, and he sat there eating them, tearing one bag open after another. Within a few minutes, all of his symptoms were gone, the sickness, the dizziness, and everything, and he was happy again. It didn't occur to me until later, sitting back processing on just what had happened, never dawned on me as I was contemplating horrible medical situations and wondering what I would do in the United States, perhaps if he didn't have insurance or something, what was I going to do with a busload of students if I had one really sick kid? But it never dawned on me at that time that what was wrong with the 18-year-old boy was that perhaps he had never gone more than six hours between meals. And therefore, the pain that he was experiencing with his hunger was new and absolutely horrific and looked like death. These are the nature of first world problems. Now, my point is this, as I thought about that and processed that afterwards, if we are concerned about an 18-year-old boy who is in pain, but is fully capable of going to a gas station and acquiring his own food and feeding himself, how much more concerned would I be for an eight-month-old baby? See, I can look at an 18-year-old person and say, now, being wiser, you're not a cupcake. Just eat a bit and you'll be okay. Buy something and fix your problems. But I cannot look at an eight-month-old baby that is crying and say to that little child, Why are you crying? Don't you know, you've seen your mother for the last eight months put your bottle in that diaper bag. Just help yourself to it and drink. Why are you bothering me? You know the reason that you and I would never say something like that is because all of us know in our heads that an infant is absolutely incapable of helping themselves. If you did not literally take that bottle and tip it to their lips, they would starve to death even though food was 18 inches away from their head. See, I will run to a wailing eight-month-old 
who is hungry, but I have no sympathy for an 18-year-old that is hungry. And this is the point. Do you think that the God who is in heaven, who hears the cries of godly widows, who have no provision, have nothing in this world, no relatives to take care of them, especially in their culture where there were no RRSPs, do you not think that the God who hears the cries of the most helpless of his creatures will actually let them starve? If you or I who are evil and know how to give good gifts to our children, know how to look at an eight-month-old baby that's crying there and say, you aren't even mine, but I'm going to feed you so you don't die, how much more so will God who is in heaven take care of those who have absolutely nothing else in this world and cry out to him and say, I've set my hope fully on you, God. Do you not think that he will answer? I think he will. And the question for us is whether or not we want to be a part of the solution. To allow God to work for that widow miraculously or mediately. God can do both. And you look at the heart of Jesus, how Jesus loved widows. He commended the widow who had two coins, all she had to live on, and threw that into the offering basket. He raised a dead widow's son at Nain and gave the son back to the mother. Jesus, while he was dying on the cross, knowing that he was the eldest son and that his mother Mary, Joseph doesn't seem to be in the picture anywhere, was probably a widow, knowing he can't take care of her, arranges for his disciple to be her new son and to care for her in her old age. Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Jesus loved the broken, the needy, and the widows. All this to say is that God cares deeply. You know, if you find yourself in a situation where you have nobody to care for you, you are desperate, you are lonely, and you feel like you are abandoned, let me tell you and give you hope. The God of the Bible knows and he sees. And he hears especially your cries. And he can serve you either miraculously by sending ravens to give you food and feed you, or he can, send, he can work immediately through brothers and sisters who drive to the place where you live and offer you a meal and a family. You know, God works miraculously and immediately, and that's what we see in verses 7 to 8. Command these things as well, so they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, Paul is saying, Church, the world is looking at you right now. Be blameless in the way that you treat the family of God. Be without reproach and allow God to work immediately through your hands. I think it's really important for us to understand this is not just the pastor's job or very spiritual Christian's job. It is the job for every single believer who has been placed in a position of leadership, authority, or is a provider for those in their household. To fail to do so and to provide physically for a family is to be worse, Paul says, than an unbeliever. Those who throw out aging parents and care nothing for them while proclaiming the name of Christ, are hardly Christian. See, over and over again, we read in the scriptures, you don't need to be an atheist to deny God. Professing Christians do it all the time. If you love the world, if you don't provide for the needy, 
If you have no forgiveness in your heart for those who sin against you, then you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sure, you might be able to intellectually explain the gospel, but you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just informative, it's transformative as well. If the way that you live doesn't reflect compassion for the needy, then it's probably because you actually have not grasped God's compassion for you on the cross. You know, church, there is a great calling over our lives to live and to love the family of God and to treat our family members with the respect we would give to mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters with all purity. Not just giving respect because they're old and failing to correct them when they're wrong. Yes, we must correct, but giving them the respect that God wants us to have for them. And for those who are most needy amongst us, God calls us to demonstrate His steadfast love and His kindness. He can serve them miraculously, but here in this text, we learn that the heart of God is to serve many of them immediately through their biological family who acknowledges Jesus Christ and those who do not share their blood, but share in the blood of Jesus Christ and will treat them as family, though they have none. God calls us to be exemplary, to live a life of love and compassion. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how is this possible? You know, how is it possible to be an exemplary person? To live like Jesus, one needs to experience and work through the power of Jesus Christ from the cross. See, in the gospel, Jesus Christ embraced humility so that we ultimately would not have to be humbled one day before God and humiliated because of our sin. Jesus Christ became a man so that he could become our brother and a fellow family member in the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't just call us to help the helpless, but he came for us when we were helplessly lost in our own sins, completely unable to save ourselves. He gave his perfect life for us so that we could have lived, so that we could live. You know, Jesus Christ, you look at him all throughout the Gospels. He dealt with thick-headed, dundering disciples who barely got it most of the time. And yet, though they were his spiritual youngers and perhaps younger than him in age as well, he never belittled them, shamed them, but encouraged them, strengthened them. Of course, he had hard words as well, and he told them the truth, but he loved them to the very end. And even Peter, who denied him, he told to turn again one day and strengthen his brothers. This is the Jesus who sets for us an example. A Jesus who is willing to look at the idols of our lives, like he did with the rich young man, and loving him, told him, sell all you have and follow me, because if you don't, that idol that you have will kill you. Jesus loves us enough to break through the cultural taboos, the things we would never think of doing in our culture, to reach our hearts and to remove the idols from us that keep us from living like him. See, Jesus doesn't just call us to live an earthly life, but he models us one, a perfect one as well, and then gives us his power to live in a way that honors him. If you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, only then will you truly be able to help the helpless because you yourself have been a recipient of grace. By his stripes, you were healed. Friends, you who are sitting here, let me just ask you, some of you are new here as well. Do you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Is it the joy of your heart? Do you think about what God has done for you in this glorious gospel? Do you realize just how lost you were in utter darkness and would have stayed that way if God had not chosen first to set his affections on you and to draw you out of that kingdom of darkness and to save your soul? He has done more for you than you could ever do to repay him. Just as we will never be able to repay a mother who has labored over us since we were a child and nursed us with her very own body, we will never be able to repay God for what he has done. And this is why there is no amount of pride we can have in our works. All that we do, all that we serve and give of in our lives is but a mere fraction, a mere candle compared to the Son of glory in the works that Jesus Christ has done for us. Church, how does one be a light in this world? By understanding that we are recipients of the warmth and eternal light that comes from the true Son of God that lights up this entire globe. And only then will you be able to go out and reflect Him. And may the world, as we live as lights who reflect Jesus Christ, be treated to a vision of God as they look at the family of God and see His face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross doesn't just save us, but saves us into the family of God. A family that we will enjoy for all eternity. Lord, help us to love you and believe the gospel. And would you make us into a group of people who are known for their deep love for one another and for you. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.